This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on culture and society in the 1920s, taught by Georgetown University professor Michael Kazin. This episode was recorded in 2013. Now, in my last lecture and uh, in our debate on Monday, which I think went pretty well, uh, you might have uh, been left with a question in your minds. Um, what was the legacy of World War I for American society? Now, the politics of the United States definitely veered to the right uh, during the 1920s. Republican presidents, uh, fairly conservative ones, were elected by landslides in 1920, 1924, and 1928. Um, Congress was under the control of the Republicans throughout the 1920s. Um, with the support of Congress, Republican presidents signed bills which rolled back the income tax increases that were passed during World War I. Uh, and the leading social movements on the left, labor unions and the Socialist Party, um, both lost members during the war. In fact, the Socialist Party was never really a factor in American politics again uh, after the 1920 election. Um, and people on the left generally, whether people we now consider to be liberals, former progressives, or radicals, were all on the defensive during the 1920s. Uh, the most popular president in the 1920s, Calvin Coolidge, who took office in 1923 when Warren G. Harding died of a heart attack and then was reelected uh, by a landslide in 1924, uh, famously said in uh, the mid-1920s, the business of America is business. Uh, it was a prosperous time for a lot of Americans, though certainly not all. Um, stock prices were fairly high. Uh, wages were either stable or going up, depending on what occupation you're in. Um, Farmers are not doing as well as they've done during World War I when farm prices are going really high, as they often do uh, during wars. But nevertheless, uh, in many places in the country, they were not doing so badly. Um, now, there was one piece of legislation passed uh, in 1924, one of actually a number of pieces of legislation on the issue of, of immigration, uh, which gave a sense both of the power of what you might call the old stock Americans, Americans from mostly Western European backgrounds, white uh, in every case, um, but also gave a sense, I think, of the vulnerability that those people felt um, uh, because so many uh, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Jewish uh, people had moved into the United States uh, beginning in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, so many African Americans had moved to the North and big cities and big cities in the South as well during the war, uh, as you know. Um, this bill was passed in uh, 1924. It's called the Johnson-Reed Act, named after two of the people who were um, the key senator uh, and key congressman uh, who put their names to the legislation and got it through Congress. Uh, what this bill did is um, it restricted uh, immigration uh, in the United States after that point to 2% of the number of people from any foreign nation who had been in the United States according to the 1890 census. Now, this sounds uh, a little abstract. What it basically means is that um, the percentage of immigrants allowed to come in the country was dependent on the percentage of immigrants from that country, them, from that particular country in 1890. Um, now, 1890 was just at the beginning of the so-called new immigration, just the beginning of the influx of people from places like Italy, Russia, Poland, Hungary, Greece, Syria, um, other places in uh, Eastern and Southern Europe. Uh, and the 1924 law completely excluded uh, immigrants from East Asia, except for Filipinos, 
who came from an American colony. Um, so basically, the quotas, and they were called quotas, that were set down for immigration from 1924 on until 1965, this law lasted roughly for 40, a little more than 40 years, uh, it was much easier to come to the country if you were uh, from Ireland, if you were from England, if you were from Norway, for example, because the number of people from those countries in the United States was pretty high, 1890, much harder if you were from Russia or from Poland um, or from, or from uh, Finland, let's say. Uh, and impossible if you were from Japan or China or Korea. Um, so the United States was supposed to remain an Anglo-Saxon uh, and predominantly Protestant nation forever onward. That was the idea, that was the hope uh, of the people who passed this bill, the Republican majority in Congress, and some Southern Democrats voted for it as well. The only votes against this law really were from uh, people from the ethnic cities, uh, from New York and from Chicago and from Philadelphia, um, places like that, uh, many of them Catholic and Jewish. But they didn't have enough votes in Congress to stop the bill from being passed, and certainly not enough political clout to stop uh, President Calvin Coolidge from signing it. But as I said, this was, law was a sign of a certain uh, fear and weakness, I think, among the white Anglo-Saxon majority as well. And the weakness uh, can be glimpsed in what was going on in American culture in the 1920s, um, which is the main topic of the lecture today. The 20s saw a number of fierce conflicts between supporters of an older, white, mostly Protestant, uh, and very deep, deep religious and mostly rural order, the majority, but a, a, a majority that was, felt itself in peril. And on the other side, um, those both immigrant and native-born who had a more tolerant or at least a looser sense of personal morality and who lived mostly in modern cosmopolitan cities with a mix of churchgoers and secularists. If you see echoes of this split in our own time, in, in arguments between those who support gay marriage and those who oppose it, between arguments whether those who, who think sex education in schools is great and those who don't think it is at all, between those who think that uh, the teaching revolution uh, in science classes is just uh, non-debatable, uh, it's part of science, and those who think that creationism or intelligent design should be taught along with the teaching revolution, uh, this is not an accident. Uh, culture clashes, cultural conflicts, uh, have a way of, of lasting a long time. And even when the specific uh, issues uh, that were fought over in the 20s don't necessarily last as long, uh, the legacy of those, of those uh, battles does last a long time. So in many ways, um, if you're in some parts of the country today, this, these cultural clashes don't seem quite so much in the past at all. Uh, what I want to do today is discuss, uh, in specifics, three sites of this conflict. First, the battles over prohibition, which, of course, was the law in the 1920s. Second, clashes over the content of movies, motion pictures, uh, which became, in the 1920s, the most popular art in America. And then, lastly, the conflict over whether the Darwinian theory of evolution uh, should be taught in public schools, because uh, laws were being passed in certain states in the 1920s to actually forbid the teaching of evolution in public schools. Um, and as we'll see, the rationale for that, in part, was that the parents in many school districts didn't want evolution taught in their kids' schools. And so you got an issue of free speech and the claims of science versus uh, the claims of democracy, uh, if you will. 
But first, prohibition, which you've heard something about already, but not uh, since it's been law. Oops. Um, this is a sign, this is a, uh, a glimpse here of uh, revenue agents um, uh, busting a, a still uh, somewhere in one of the cities in the Northeast, um, together with these mason jars you see here that were about to be filled by this uh, bootleg liquor. The 18th Amendment to the Constitution goes into effect January 1920. It was, it was ratified by enough states in 1919. Uh, and by the way, Congress passed it over the veto of President Woodrow Wilson. So you can see how popular it was. Uh, prohibited the sale and manufacture, though not the consumption, of alcohol. And that's interesting, by the way, to note. The 18th Amendment did not stop individuals who actually had liquor in their hands from drinking it. The idea was to stop the business of alcohol, the manufacture of it, uh, the sale of it, the commerce in alcohol, the, tr the traffic in alcohol, as it was known. Uh, the thought was that if you stop people from being able to uh, manufacture it and distribute it and sell it, uh, eventually people will stop drinking it as well. But, but Congress didn't want to um, pillory an individual who might have gotten liquor. In fact, before the amendment was ratified, people would stock up as much liquor as they could if they could afford to. Uh, so they'd be able to drink it legally uh, after the amendment uh, was ratified. Uh, contrary to conventional wisdom, uh, prohibition, even though it did institute a regime of a lot of lawlessness, uh, a lot of people broke the law, especially in big cities, did actually reduce drinking overall in America. Uh, places where prohibition was popular, and there are many of them, uh, drinking did go down. There was a uh, sort of an informal prohibition, if you will. Uh, neighbors would enforce it against other neighbors, for example. Um, so in rural America, in small-town America, in the South, uh, for example, parts of the West, uh, drinking did go down and quite dramatically. But it went up in big cities. Um, the act that was passed uh, along with the Prohibition Amendment when it was ratified to enforce the act was called the Volstead Act. Um, it was named after a Minnesota congressman who authored it from Granite Falls, Minnesota. Um, and uh, it was, on one hand, a tremendous um, increase in the power of government. Uh, government, af after all, was given the power to go in and bust up um, any place where liquor was sold anywhere in the country, and also to have border agents uh, across the border, uh, to Canada especially, and uh, the Coast Guard was empowered to stop boats from coming in uh, to Florida and other places where to offload liquor. Um, but on the other hand, Congress did not uh, um, appropriate enough funds to hire enough people to do all that the Volstead Act was supposed to be doing. Uh, only 1,500 agents were hired to actually enforce the Volstead Act, where in a country of over 100 million people was probably not enough. Um, yet, as I said, it was informally enforced by many uh, Protestant Americans, and they continue to support prohibition not just because they thought it was a good idea for people not to drink, just they did, not just because they believed that the liquor business was a sinful um, enterprise, driving people to do terrible things, but also because they saw it as, as a symbolic stand against the uh, supposedly hedonistic uh, libertarian values of the modern city, against the alien customs of Catholic and Jewish immigrants, uh, Eastern Orthodox immigrants, many of whom took drinking as just part of their culture. Uh, 
And of course, there were older arguments given as well, which continued to have a lot of salience uh, during the time when prohibition was law. Uh, one of the arguments you heard about before was that uh, a drunken man was an abusive human being, that he would uh, beat up his wife, that he would uh, neglect his children, that he would be a terrible worker. This is a, um, one of the more popular illustrations uh, of this attitude. Also uh, added to it was the anti-immigrant side of it. Uh, here you see um, two men surreptitiously unloading liquor um, from Europe, from Russia, uh, going across the border from Canada to the US. Uh, this was an immigrant invasion, an alien invasion, not of individuals so much, but of, um, uh, of Im immigrant alien commerce. Yes? Was the box on the bottom left, was that supposed to be? Sort of Asian liquor, the stylization of the text, or just another Canadian? Uh, yeah, to a point. Uh, it's from the Tongs from from China, exactly. Um, tongs were were um, supposedly uh, gangs of uh, of Chinese uh, who 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 terrorized the Chinese immigrant population, also employed Chinese as gangsters. So uh, we'll talk. About, I'll talk a little bit more about how the fear of gangsters uh, is becomes part of this. Um, so you had an urban immigrant split. You had all the arguments about protecting women and children. You had uh, a sense of um, uh, the fear of immigrants uh, being uh, married with the fear of uh, prohibition, with the fear of prohibition not uh, being enforced the way it should be enforced. Uh, you've got a uh, combustible mix here. Um, now, of course, what made this combustible mix um, so much apparent um, uh, to, to many Americans was the fact that in the bigger cities, in the more cosmopolitan places, among very wealthy people, uh, where they're immigrants and, uh, and the, the uh, elite sort of mixing, um, you had um, bars, uh, now we think of as speakeasies, which operated almost openly in many of these places, where places like New York and Chicago, where, where, <clears throat> excuse me, where um, the prohibition law was pretty much a dead letter. Um, one example of this was a place called the 300 Club um, in Manhattan, um, which was run by this woman, uh, Texas Guinan, her name was, um, who was a former silent movie star. Um, her club was one of the more famous clubs in America. Everyone who read newspapers in the 1920s would have heard of Texas Guinan's 300 Club. It was famous for being able to sell liquor at very high prices, um, it was famous for having a troupe of 40 scantily clad uh, fan dancers. Um, and she was a hip, charming, uh, charismatic woman, too. And people wanted to come to be, they wanted to drink at her club. There were many other clubs they could drink at, but Texas Guinan's Club was one of the more popular ones. Uh, she was arrested several times for serving alcohol um, and providing entertainment against city laws. She always claimed, however, and, and successfully so, that her patrons had brought the liquor in with them. She hadn't sold it to them. And bringing liquor with you, uh, if you had somehow been able to purchase it yourself, uh, was not illegal. And it was pretty hard to prove that they actually bought it there. There were no receipts. The club was pretty small. It served an elite clientele. Uh, that she said, well, the girls really weren't touching the customers on purpose. It was just so small they had to dance close to the customers, because otherwise there was no space. Um, she claimed to the end of her life she'd never sold an alcoholic drink in her life. Her club uh, was the hangout 
for some of the city's wealthy elite and also for many of the most important entertainment celebrities in the country. The great composer George Gershwin uh, used to go there a lot and play his piano there uh, impromptu. Some of the guests included some of the biggest film stars who were friends of Guinan's from her film days. Um, people like Gloria Swanson, uh, Rudolph Valentino, I'll talk about a little later, and Al Jolson. Um, there were wealthy guests with names like Vanderbilt and Chrysler uh, who used to come to the club. And she made a very good living uh, one way or another, whether legally or illegally. Uh, when she died, it turned out she'd earned $700,000 in one year, 1926, and lesser amounts in other years, um, even though her clubs were routinely raided by the police. Um, her famous uh, greeting to people who came to the club was, hello, suckers. But she was obviously no sucker. <clears throat> now, this kind of behavior repelled a good many Americans, those who supported prohibition and thought it should be enforced as strictly as possible, and thought people who didn't enforce prohibition were uh, immoral, um, uh, evil people. The most popular prohibitionist uh, in the 1920s was not a government official, or certainly not a Treasury Department agent trying to enforce the law. It was the most popular Protestant evangelist um, in the country, the most popular Protestant evangelist in the United States until uh, Billy Graham. Uh, later in the 1950s. Billy Graham was still alive today, but no longer preaching a lot. The name of this evangelist was Billy Sunday. And that was his real name, by the way. Um, here's Billy Sunday, a very aggressive, uh, fit guy. Whoops, got ahead of myself there. <clears throat> Billy Sunday was a former Major League Baseball player with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Not very good, but at least he was good enough to play uh, Major League Baseball for a while. He lectured on many different issues. He was a fundamentalist. He believed the Bible was, uh, all the Bible was written uh, uh, by people who understood the, the will of God, if not by God himself. Um, and so he was also a leading fundamentalist. But his leading cause in the 1920s was prohibition. Uh, and he took direct aim at people like Guinan and her crowd. He called them, quote, the diamond-wearing bunch, the big automobile gang, the silk-gowned. He condemned the low-down, whiskey-soaked, beer-guzzling, bull-necked, foul-mouthed hypocrite who beat his wife and neglected his work. Um, Sunday was a very physical evangelist. He would bound around the stage. He would get down on his knees. He would jump up. He looked like Mick Jagger or something, uh, uh, except he would have hated, of course, Mick Jagger's style of life. But nevertheless, this was an uh, entertaining evangelist. But he was very much uh, in earnest when he talked about prohibition or any subject that he lectured on. His most famous talk uh, was what he called the booze sermon. And this is where he urged people uh, before prohibition became law and very much after it became law to, um, to get rid of liquor in their lives. He compared liquor to a rattlesnake and a voracious mongoose. He described in very graphic detail what alcohol does to the flesh, to the face, and the liver. And most of all, he challenged men in his audience, and most of his audience was male, <clears throat> to do what he said was their moral duty. You have a chance to show your manhood, he said, by abolishing the curse of your wife and the poor innocent children that climb up on your lap and put their arms around your neck. 
Tens of thousands heard his sermon and swore an oath to vote for and then enforce prohibition. With a supporter like Sunday, and there were smaller Sundays all over the country, and a very powerful lobby behind them too, there was a group called the Anti-Saloon League, which had begun in the 1890s but really comes onto its, into its own in the 1920s, where ministers all over the country, Protestant ministers, mostly from the more evangelical churches, Presbyterians, Baptists, Congregationalists, Methodists especially, um, are encouraging their parishioners um, to make sure that they not just uh, don't purchase liquor or drink liquor themselves, but that they put the onus on anybody they know uh, who is breaking the law. Um, so this was a big government program with a lot of people supporting it behind it, but, and yet a lot at the same time a lot of people who uh, believed that this was ridiculous, that people could drink uh, without destroying their lives, without beating their wives, um, and of course, not surprisingly, uh, the rhetoric of the Anti-Saloon League, the rhetoric of Billy Sunday was very much anti-immigrant, uh, sometimes also anti-Catholic. And so Catholics, immigrants in general, you know, took it almost as their duty to <laughs> um, disobey the law and certainly to lobby against it. And throughout the 20s, there was a big attempt to actually repeal the Prohibition Amendment, which actually did happen uh, in 1933. Um, and, but even during this time, Texas Guinan's... Uh, uh, club was just one sign of, of the weakness of prohibition in the big cities. In San Francisco, for example, there were just nine agents to enforce the Volstead Act, nine agents in the city of about 300,000 people. The mayor of San Francisco, a man named Sonny Jim Rolfe, actually was seen drinking speakeasies. <laughs> this is the Republican mayor of one of the major cities in the country. So uh, you can see what a dead letter uh, the Volstead Act was in, uh, in the cities. So the law proved difficult to enforce, um, but, uh, and the enforcement of it was left more and more to citizens themselves. And a new social movement sprang up uh, in part to help enforce it, and also to uh, preserve the supremacy of white Protestant native-born citizens, which of course was always one of the aims, um, if implicitly, of most prohibitionists. And this, no, this new social movement was one that took a name of an older social movement, the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan was revived in 1915 by an entrepreneur from the South named William Simmons, who got people to sign up for the Klan and took a proportion of uh, their membership fees. He made a lot of money doing it. And one of the reasons he was able to um, revive the Klan, using this term, was even though the Klan from the Reconstruction years had been suppressed by uh, the U.S. Army, um, its memory had lived on in popular culture in the South and elsewhere as well, but as I've mentioned before, it came, came back in a big way when this film was, was released in 1915, Birth of a Nation. This is the actual poster of what was at the time the most popular film in America. 100 years ago, a little less than 100 years ago. Um, on the strength of this heroic portrait of the Klan defending the morality of, uh, of white women, especially in the South, um, several million members were signed up uh, by the Klan. But more and more, by the 1920s, uh, journalists, uh, social scientists noticed that the Klan was growing much more in uh, the North than it was in the South. 
is headquartered, its headquarters were in, the, were in Atlanta. Headquarters were in the South, uh, where it had been formed in, 19, in, the, in the late uh, 1860s, early 1870s. But um, more and more uh, people where there are very few African Americans still uh, would join the, the Klan. Uh, places like Indiana and Oregon, uh, rural Michigan, uh, Orange County in Southern California. There, the uh, main impetus for joining the Klan was people who wanted to push back against Catholic immigrants, push back against Jewish immigrants, uh, defend what they saw as uh, an assault on the public schools by parochial schools. Uh, public schools at the time in America, uh, in heavily Protestant areas especially, um, tended to really be in many ways Protestant schools. The King James Bible, the Protestant Bible was taught openly in these schools. The uh, history of um, the world was taught as a, as a story of Protestant supremacy. Um, in, uh, um, in the world, and Protestants as a more moral group than Catholics, Jews, or other uh, religions. And so the, the Klan was very much supportive of public schools. Uh, wanted no funding for, for Catholic schools of any kind, for example. Um, the Klan, by the mid-1920s, at its height, the second Klan, as it's known, had as many as five million members. Um, and it had as many women members as it did male members. Of course, they better tailored uh, uh, uniforms, probably. Um, and again, uh, even though we think of the Klan today as a very reactionary organization, which in terms of civil rights, of course, and, and uh, ethnic pluralism, it certainly was, religious pluralism certainly was, but if you think about it as in some ways a continuation of some of the uh, progressive impulses uh, from the early uh, 20th century, just a few years before the 20s, uh, there was some continuity. For example, the Klan generally was in favor of women's suffrage. The Klan generally was in favor, as I said, of public schools and public schools getting more, funded, more funding. It wasn't necessarily against uh, a, a cut in uh, income taxes because uh, it, wanted, it was wanted to make sure that the government could have enough money to enforce the prohibition law. Um, and its key issue was enforcing the prohibition law. And after all, remember, this was the law. So the Klan, we think of as a lawless, vigilante, violent organization, was violent in many, many ways, uh, but it was violent in the cause of enforcing the law. And of course, that's how uh, Klansmen and Klanswomen saw it. One pro Klan um, organization, uh, excuse me, magazine in Indiana uh, put it this way. The writing of the 18th Amendment was the crystallization of nationwide Christian sentiment. The enemy liquor gang, angry, vindictive, unpatriotic, is seeking the overthrow of the highest authority in the land. They can count on the hoodlums, the crooks, the vice joints, the whiskey-loving aliens, and the indifferent citizen to help them win. Can they count on you? Um, here was a larger purpose of the Klan, as stated by Hiram Evans, who was the grand wizard of the Klan uh, through the mid-1920s. And you can see the um, racial exclusivity of the Klan in this quotation, but you can also, I think, see a, what you might call a populist edge to the Klan. This is the Klan grew large. It was enlisting people who were mostly in the working class and uh, lower middle class of white Protestant society. 
it wasn't getting richer uh, people, uh, and it wasn't getting the poorest white people either. It was getting people who were, as it says, farmers, artisans. Uh, people really felt that they had gained something, but not very much in American society, and those gains were under attack uh, by these new groups coming into the country. Native white Protestant supremacy. Traditional moral standards went by the boards and so forth. This was a restorationist uh, organization. And it was easily the largest social movement in America in the mid-1920s. Well, it didn't have a long life in the limelight. Uh, there were scandals. The leader of the Klan in Indiana, where the Klan basically controlled the government for several years, uh, was found um, uh, raping and, um, uh, and, in other ways, uh, uh, abusing women. Um, Hiram, Hiram Stevenson, um, he was um, thrown into jail uh, as the leader of the Klan in Indiana. Uh, the whole Klan was thrown into disrepute by this, and people started to leave it. And also, more and more newspapers, even in states where the Klan was strong, more and more politicians began to denounce the Klan. It seemed to be going uh, too far especially as prohibition seemed to be more and more unpopular. Uh, the idea of this, this uh, bully organization, this vigilante organization enforcing the law, which was more and more unpopular, also became unpopular. So the Klan, the second Klan, continues until World War II, but its, its numbers decrease. An organization which had 4 million members in the mid-1920s, by 1930 only has about 30,000 members. A third Klan was reorganized in the 1950s to battle the civil rights movement, but that's a later story. Well, the Klan was right about one thing, however. Some hoodlums were making a fine living defying the Volstead Act. The most famous of them, uh, a name still well known today, if you ever watched the, the HBO show Boardwalk Empire, anybody watch that show? Um, you see uh, uh, he's, he's one of the stars, or an actor playing him is one of the stars of that show. And this, of course, is Al Capone. This is actually after he was arrested, so... <laughs> He looked, he looked better uh, before these days. Um, Al Capone and you know, the gangsters in general, whose main business was to uh, supply uh, illegal alcohol, um, became uh, important cultural figures in the 1920s. They were hated and feared by a lot of Americans. They were very violent, of course. Uh, gangs they organized, fought with other gangs, organized by other gangsters, um, and blood ran in the streets of Chicago, Detroit, New York, uh, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, um, other major cities across the East and the Midwest. But at the same time, people like Capone were also secretly admired by some people, and that's important to realize, I think. You wouldn't have had movies starring people like James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart playing gangsters, as rather tough but romantic figures if there wasn't certain admiration uh, that Americans had for them. Those, J James Cagney would not have become a great actor and a famous uh, actor, good box office actor, if uh, uh, the gangsters he played were uh, seen as totally reprehensible. Talk about Al Capone as the most famous example of gangsters from the 20s. First of all, uh, to give you some idea why he was admired uh, by many people, at least seen as a symbol. First of all, he was a self-made man. Americans like self-made men, right? Uh, we respect them, we admire them, now self-made women. Um, he rose from obscurity, poverty, to tremendous wealth, tremendous power, and of course, tremendous fame. 
Uh, Capone was born in an immigrant slum in Brooklyn. He then moved to uh, two Italian immigrant parents. Uh, he dropped out of school to help his family, went to work, not illegally at first. Uh, in the early 20s, he moved to Chicago uh, and rose through the ranks of the mob fairly quickly because of his courage, his intelligence, and his skill, and also his willingness to kill anybody who stood in his way. He organized the rackets in Chicago, and he made them efficient. Um, he was involved not just in alcohol, but also in gambling, in prostitution, and also in extortion for businessmen who didn't uh, follow his uh, orders. Oops. Um, by 1925, when he was only 26 years old, he headed a business that generated $60 million annually, which is equivalent to, oh, about uh, $400, $500 million today. His payroll included no less than 1,000 gunmen who killed at least 250 competitors of his in Chicago, including such colorful characters with great names like Dean O'Banion, Jaime Weiss, and Bugs Moran, Irish and Jewish competitors. And he was a complicated fellow. He was a family man, several children, faithful to his wife, at least uh, that was what most people heard and believed. He hosted annual block parties where he lived in Chicago. He was a consummate consumer. He uh, wore 11 carat diamond rings. He liked to buy and, and consume rich wine and excellent food, not just excellent Italian food, excellent French food as well. And he was also seemed like a, a good man who gave back to the community, as we would say now. Um, he was a philanthropist. During the uh, beginning of the Great Depression, when he was still out of jail, uh, 1930, 1931, when prohibition was still the law, he was making lots of money, he gave millions of dollars to soup kitchens in Chicago. Here are the, some of the men uh, eating, unemployed men, uh, who were eating uh, on his dime or his quarter. Um, and also, he became, uh, obviously, a celebrity. Here's uh, Al Capone with one of his sons. Um, there's a, I think it's Chicago White Sox, uh, the South Side Chicago baseball team, as some of you probably know, uh, President Obama's favorite team, um, uh, signing an autograph for Al Capone. Uh, I'm not, I don't, my, my baseball knowledge is not good enough to know who this player is. Anybody know who that player is? Uh, I'll have to identify him later on. Um, and this, of course, the fact that Chicago Tribune took a photo of this, and it was on the sports page, right in the top of the sports page uh, in the, in the mid-1920s, shows that Al Capone was, you know, not a good citizen exactly, but uh, nevertheless uh, one, a celebrated one. Uh, and, and he made, uh, he put Chicago on the map in more ways than one. Now, of course, this couldn't last. Um, in 1929, when Capone was on a trip to Miami, um, his men uh, uh, executed, and that's the right verb for it, uh, a massacre of uh, nine men from a rival gang in a garage on St. Valentine's Day, um, the famous St. Valentine's Day massacre. Um, There's a lot of shootings, sort of drive-by shootings, uh, shootings in private, but this was in a major garage in a major part of Chicago, uh, this was something that the government could not ignore, and it was clear that Capone's men had done it. So 
public outrage at this forced the federal government finally to act against Capone. They had to find some way of getting him. He was too smart uh, to be found actually violating the Volstead Act. Uh, so what they did was they got him on uh, tax evasion. Um, he hadn't really he hadn't really filled out his income tax um, uh, accurately because obviously he was hiding a lot of the money he made uh, from alcohol. So he was convicted of tax evasion in 1931 um, and sent to Alcatraz prison in San Francisco Bay, which was then a, a new prison, a uh, state-of-the-art prison. He um, contacted syphilis, so he wasn't as, quite as faithful to his wife as people thought, uh, and he died of syphilis in 1947, uh, still in jail in Alcatraz. Um, now, another indication of the new urban culture, which many Americans uh, admired, but many other Americans abhorred, um, appeared on screen. 1920s movies, as I said before, became the most popular form of entertainment in America. Even more popular when you started to have talking films uh, in 1927. Al Jolson, I mentioned before, as one of the patrons at Texas Guidance 300 Club, was the, the star of the first uh, full-length talking picture um, called The Jazz Singer. And Hollywood already, even before uh, you had um, sound movies, was already a synonym, uh, as it is today, for beautiful, talented people making lots of money, living in thoroughly immoral ways. Charlie Chaplin, the biggest film star of the 1920s, uh, was well known for having a series of teenage mistresses. Uh, when he finally got married, he married a woman 40 years younger than him. Uh, the second most popular comedian in the 20s on screen was a guy named Fatty Arbuckle, who was accused of raping and killing a young actress at a party he gave at his house. Arbuckle was acquitted in several trials, but his career was ruined by these accusations. As I mentioned before, gangsters were sometimes glorified in films. And one of the things which made those who uh, were un unhappy with this uh, new cultural um, kind of production uh, particularly unhappy was there was a lot of sexual innuendo, um, almost explicitly, uh, in these films. 1920s films were more sexually explicit than anything you would see until the 1970s. And I'll talk about uh, why that happened. Um, one example of this was um, one of the most popular film stars of the 20s, a woman named Theta Bara, who herself was actually uh, from Jewish immigrant parents. Her, her maiden name was, was uh, Theodosia Goodman. She was from Cincinnati. Um, she was one of the, what are they called, the vamps, short for vampire. That is, women who uh, appeared um, sort of cool, sensual, willing to have sex with men, uh, but as long as they could control those men um, and ruin them, in fact. Uh, she made lots of films, some one-reelers, some feature films, in which the same basic plot uh, rolled out. Um, a good moral man is just brought to destruction because he just can't resist her. Um, they didn't show sex on screen, but it was pretty clear <laughs> why he was being ruined. Uh, but she was never ruined. She continued, as vampires do, to live on and on and on. Another example was this guy, Rudolf Valentino, um, an Italian from, boy from Italian immigrant parents, um, who uh, made many films, but his most popular films were, he, were where he made, he, he, he um, played a character known as the Sheik, uh, 
a supposedly Arab um, a chieftain um, who lures uh, blonde uh, European and American women to his tent and then seduces them. And they, of course, uh, can't get enough of him, like this woman here, clinging on him, where he's just about ready to push you off for somebody else. Um, these films uh, were uh, very, very popular. Valentino himself was, was incredible. He was, he was like uh, the Beatles of his day, or like, uh, um, that's a, <laughs> a reference that uh, is very old-fashioned uh, today, but um, hard to think of any, any, any film star today who has this kind of, uh, kind of appeal. When he died in the late 1920s, um, very um, early, uh, prematurely, uh, thousands of women uh, came to his, to his funeral, tried to take pieces of the, uh, of the coffin, uh, 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 had a very hard time moving through the streets of Los Angeles uh, because it was such a, um, a sad day for so many people who loved him. In fact, his popularity um, uh, was symbolized in many ways by the fact that the most popular brand of prophylactic uh, that was sold in America in the 20s, and after that, for several decades, was called the Sheik. Um, I'm not sure this is still made today. But, um, now, all this, of course, was tremendously shocking and, and uh, devastating to a sense of, of older morality, and not just a Protestant morality, either. Uh, the Catholic hierarchy in America, which, of course, was more and more powerful because there were more and more Catholics in America, Irish and Hungarians and Poles, um, German Catholics, uh, Latin American Catholics, um, they decided that, you know, figures like this, people like Valentino, who was at least nominally a Catholic, you know, they were, they were being imitated, they were being seen by Catholic boys and girls in the cities um, who were making them into heroes, and this, this, couldn't, this couldn't do. So the archbishops, the bishops of America, uh, decided we had to do something about this. So they went to Hollywood and said, look, you know, we're not against movies themselves, you know, they're here to stay, uh, but we'd like you to adopt certain morality, what was called the production code, uh, which would make sure that a couple was never shown in bed together, make sure that this kind of shot would, would not be shown again on, on screen, um, make sure that all you'd see between a man and a woman was a, a kiss, nothing more, um, and that uh, as much as possible, uh, gangster films would end with a gangster being killed in a bloody fashion, uh, being discredited, and being very, very clear that he was no model for, um, for young people. Um, production Code 1930 was actually drafted by a priest and a leading Catholic layman. Uh, the production office was called the Hayes Office because it was run by a guy named Will Hayes, who was a, a leading Catholic layman himself. Um, but it took a while for it to be, to be enforced. It wasn't enforced actually in 1934. So for a while, Warner Brothers, the leading film uh, company, um, film studio in America at the time, continued to make films with titles like The Naughty Flirt, Misbehaving Ladies, and Hot Heiress. These are not X-rated films. There was no rating yet. You know, these are films you could see in uh, film theaters all over America. But in 1934, the Roman Catholic Church decided to push harder Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration, liberal in many ways, was not liberal on issues like this, and, and most Catholics were voting Democratic, so the Catholic Church had more, um, more, more push, more, um, more power to influence uh, Franklin Roosevelt's administration than they had Herbert Hoover and Calvin Coolidge's administrations. And so um, 
the production code finally was enforced from the 1930s. And from the 1930s until the late 60s, early 70s, when the production code finally was done away with, uh, you did not see a man and a woman uh, in bed together. Uh, you, J James Cagney continued to make gangster films through the 30s, but the gangster films showed him basically um, giving up, um, either, either being blown up and crazy, uh, someone who you would not want to follow, or basically telling young people uh, in Angels with Dirty Faces, for example, one of, his, one of his greatest gangster films, that they should not do what he had done, really giving him a little lesson, in effect. Um, so the films from the 30s to the 60s, a lot of great films, golden age of Hollywood in some ways, uh, but it's a, in terms of showing sexual content, uh, a much more oppressive age than our age today. And finally, a major battleground in the 20s, as throughout US history, was religion. Uh, one can never underestimate the importance, significance uh, of, of religion in American history. Uh, America, of course, uh, was founded in New England, uh, American colonies, by uh, the Puritans. Um, it was founded in the Southwest earlier, partly by Catholic missionaries, Spanish missionaries, um, going, again, going together with conquistadors, uh, armed men, um, who were defending the missions and also looking for gold. Uh, and America's always been one of the more church-going countries uh, in the world. And this was just as true in the 20s as it had been earlier. However, there was again a battle over religion uh, in the 20s. Um, on the one hand, organized religion was doing just fine. A majority of Americans, more prosperous, belonged to churches. They could pay pew rents. They could give some money uh, when the collection plate came around. Uh, most churches had ambitious building programs because they could afford to. And most of those churches, the Protestant churches, uh, were ones where the official doctrine held that the Bible was the word of God. Uh, no question about it. But under this surface, where everything seemed fine, everything seemed traditional, everything seemed to be going along as it had been, attendance in the churches was actually down. New churches were often half empty on Sundays. And skepticism about the truth claims of the Bible were growing, more than they ever had before. The 1920s, in other words, was a time of tremendous religious uh, skepticism, tremendous religious conflict, as was true for prohibition, as was true for film. What are the reasons for this? <clears throat> well, first of all, prohibition itself. Prohibition had been, since the beginning of the, of the prohibition movement, in any serious way in the late 19th century, with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, we've talked about before, the Anti-Saloon League. Prohibition was the evangelical Protestant issue. Methodists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, um, the, largest Presbyterian, the largest Protestant congregations in the country were all very much in favor of prohibition. Their ministers were ministers who were members of the Anti-Saloon League, uh, WCTU was an evangelical Protestant women's organization, as you know, and it continued to be strong in the 1920s. Uh, but prohibition was more and more popular uh, if you were not one of the members of the churches. And as I mentioned before, it was very difficult to enforce where it wasn't popular. That's one reason. Second, women were more independent. 
and women have been the mainstay of the churches. The 20s was a period in which the period of so-called new woman, uh, women uh, who were able to uh, could um, go out to work more easily, uh, even if they were married. Um, they would bob the hair, they would wear more alluring clothing, they would go to movies like this one. Um, and so women who had been the mainstay of churches, they might still go to the churches, but they could find other things to do with their time as well. And the churches that were hurt the most by this were the more traditional churches, the more fundamentalist churches. Um, also, the prosperity of the 20s, consumer prosperity, brought with it other kinds of entertainments, other kinds of associations, other kinds of things you could do with your life besides being a faithful churchgoer. Uh, college football became more popular in the 20s than ever been before. Um, professional baseball uh, had large and larger crowds in the 20s. Uh, people had radios in the houses. They could stay home on Sundays and listen to a sermon if they wanted to. Didn't have to go to church to hear one. There were car clubs. There were movie fan clubs, like the fan clubs uh, that got behind um, and were so enthusiastic about Willow Valentino. And finally, there was the growing acceptance of Darwinian theory among those with a high, among those with a high school education, which was still a minority of Americans. Um, more and more, there was a sense that. Genesis might not be the whole truth about the way the world was formed. At least it might be a, there might be other ways to understand it. Uh, and if Genesis wasn't true, well, maybe the other parts of the Bible might be thrown into uh, a bit of doubt as well. So the 20s is a time when, not surprisingly, you see both the rise of fundamentalism in American churches, a defensiveness on the part of more traditional Protestants especially, and some traditional Catholics, and, on the other hand, a rise in more relativistic, modernistic, science-oriented ways to understand um, how the world was formed. Um, and science in general becomes more and more legitimate uh, as a source of, of ultimate truth in the 20s than it had been before. Um, the leading journalist, Walter Lippmann, who was one of the most famous columnists, most widely read columnists in America, wrote in 1929, quote, this is the first age, I think, in the history of mankind when the circumstances of life have conspired with the intellectual habits of the time to render any fixed and authoritative belief incredible to large masses of men. Any fixed and authoritative belief incredible to large masses of men. Uh, in other words, relativism in knowledge is okay. Uh, relativism in knowledge is a fundamental, to use that term, uh, element of what it means to be modern, of what modernism means. That you can have different points of view and still be part of the same society. Citizens can disagree about a lot of basic things, about religion, about race, about, about politics, um, without coming to blows. Um, politics, yes, that was always true before. Race was a fairly new idea, that you could have a multiracial society and everyone could be equal. But religion was very threatening. The idea that uh, maybe uh, the Bible wasn't true. After all, uh, and many Protestants agreed with Lippmann as well. The, Lippmann himself was a sort of secular Jew. Um, many Protestants believed that one could accept Darwin and Jesus. Uh, one could you know, have two separate spheres, in effect. Science class and church didn't have to contradict one another. Um, but fundamentalists believed this was just one big step towards atheism. Um, and fundamentalists argued also that Darwinism was a brutal philosophy, 
They said, well, Darwinism is science. We don't know all the details, all the, all the uh, evidence. We're not sure about that. But one thing we do know is that Darwinism equals social Darwinism. Darwinism equals the rule of the fittest, the rule of those already at the top. Um, it's a brutal dog-eat-dog world. And we don't want the children to learn this kind of thing. Um, some fundamentalists argue that eugenicists, those who wanted to breed a better race of human beings, were, were evolutionists. And in evolution, if you believe in evolution, you would uh, do things like make sure that people who weren't very bright couldn't have children. You'd force them to get sterilized. Um, that uh, uh, they even tried to get some support, you know, ironically from uh, from, from immigrants who said, "Well, you really want these high-born elite scientists to tell your kids what to believe about the Bible." Um, crystallization of this battle between more liberal, more relativistic. Uh, attitudes towards science, especially towards the Bible, and fundamentalist ideas of what should be hold, what should be cherished and held, um, hold dear to the hearts of, of all Americans, um, occurred during the famous Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 in the little town of Dayton, Tennessee. In this courthouse, uh, this is not from 1925, this is a, a photo I took about five years ago when I went down to Dayton. Um, the Scopes trial was called the trial of the century, um, even though the century was only 25 years old <laughs> at the time. Um, and in a funny way, it's, it's funny to call it the trial of the century because it lacked any real drama. Um, a law was passed in Tennessee early in 1925, which said that um, public schools in Tennessee could not teach uh, any class which basically denied uh, that God had created man in his own image. That's what the law said. And uh, it was pretty clear if anybody did that, they were breaking the law. The man who was the defendant in the trial, this guy named John T. Scopes, young science teacher um, at the public school, Dayton High School in Tennessee, um, had broken the law unwittingly. He was actually substituting for the regular biology teacher. He wasn't a science teacher at all. He, in fact, was hired primarily to be the football coach <laughs> at Dayton High School. Um, but he was, willing to take, he was willing to be the defendant uh, in this trial, partly because he wanted to help his new town of Dayton, Tennessee. He was from Kentucky, actually. He wasn't from Tennessee. The town was, was in decline economically. Um, it had been a mining town. The mines were, were played out. And so the town needed something to build up its coffers. Everyone knew after this bill was passed earlier in 1925 that some town in Tennessee was going to be uh, the location for a big test case of the law. Uh, so uh, some of the city fathers of, of Dayton looked around for uh, someone who taught, who'd broken the law, in effect, and they found John Scopes, who used to like to hang out at the drugstore in downtown Dayton. And they sort of knew that he had taught biology uh, on several occasions. And he wasn't from the town originally himself, so they thought, well, you know, he won't get in that much trouble. He can leave uh, even if he gets convicted, which they assumed he would be convicted. So. The Scopes trial, despite all the drama that surrounded it, despite its importance, I think, in the culture classes of the 1920s, despite how many people know about it today, was originally, uh, it was located in the town it was located in to save the local economy, which for a short time it did, because lots of people came to Dayton to witness the trial. Um, as I said, the trial didn't um, have much drama in it, <clears throat> at least at first. Um, both sides in the trial, both the prosecution and the defense, basically agreed that the defendant was guilty as charged. 
Um, and Scopes didn't really suffer at all from being convicted, which he was. Um, in fact, he basked in the renown of the case for the rest of his life. When he went to you know, places where evolution was popular, you know, he would get drinks bought, dinner bought. He became a, a petroleum engineer and got jobs all around the world. Um, he had a pretty good life. But the trial, nevertheless, was a dramatic one. It drew over 100 reporters. It was one of the first trials to be uh, broadcast on a national radio hookup. Uh, and it became a touchstone for a debate that continues to rage today in America. <clears throat> the, um, the two principal lawyers in the trial were two very famous men, Clarence Darrow, uh, one of the most famous lawyers in America, a radical who defended uh, various left-wing figures like Eugene Debs of the Socialist Party and others on the left, and William Jennings Bryan, who, as you know, ran for president three different times for the Democratic Party uh, and was still seen as a progressive Democrat and a hero to many rural, uh, small-town Protestant Americans. Um, Bryan stated the stakes of the trial this way. He said at the end of the trial, which took eight days, here has been fought out a little case of little consequence as a case. But the world is interested because it raises an issue. And that issue will someday be settled right, <clears throat> whether, whether it is settled on our side or on the other side. And here was the issue. It wasn't just whether one could reconcile the Bible with the writings of Darwin. The law also raised the question of democracy, whether a teacher in a public school was free to teach the truth as he saw it, or she saw it, or whether, quote, the people have the right to control the educational system which they have created and which they tax themselves to support, which was Brian's understanding of it. He said, if you want to teach evolution in New York City, that's fine with me, but don't teach it in Tennessee, because the majority of people in Tennessee don't want it taught here. And he was definitely right about that. The legislature had passed the bill overwhelmingly earlier in the year. Clarence Darrow, the guy on the left, the great radical lawyer, agreed to head the defense for uh, Scopes only after he learned that Brian was going to be on the prosecution team on the other side. Darrow had once been a fan of, of Brian. In fact, he campaigned for him in 1896 uh, and ran a congressional campaign in 1896 as a Brian Democrat, unsuccessfully. But now, uh, 30 years later, Darrow reviled Bryan as a foe of intellectual liberty, as a symbol of what he said was despair and bigotry. Financing the defense, paying uh, Darrow's salary and that of other, other defending lawyers, was the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, which they saw as a defense of free speech. They said, we don't care about science against Christianity. We just believe that teachers in public schools should be able to teach what they believe is the truth about science. And Darrow, even though he was uh, agnostic and uh, uh, some would call an atheist, um, he didn't want to attack religion. That was not his, um, his aim. What he wanted to do was basically say that uh, the question of religion was not the primary question here. The question is whether people can teach science as it's understood. He said, I know there are millions of people in the world who look on the Bible as a divine book. I have not the slightest objection to it, Darrow said. But it is not a book of science. Never was, 
was never meant to be. So in using the Bible to stop the teaching of biology, the legislature, according to, to uh, Darrow, had violated the First Amendment. Well, the six, first six days of the trial were taken up with long uh, testimony from, sci from scientists um, who were describing the theory of evolution to people in the courtroom and people around the country who probably didn't know much about it. Um, the judge, who was a Bryan Democrat, um, listened to it. He clearly was unhappy with the testimony. He wasn't sure it was germane to the case which was, after all, not about whether science was right or not, but whether or not uh, the law had been broken by this particular science teacher. Um, the six days were, you know, uh, long. Uh, Darrow thought he was, he was doing well. Brian had little to say during the six days. Um, there were other prosecution lawyers who questioned uh, the scientists. At the end of the six days of testimony, the judge ruled none of this testimony was germane. <laughs> It was part of the trial transcript. You can read it today online if you want to. But uh, it wasn't germane to the case. So he told the jury, disregard all you've, you've heard in these previous six days. Um, this left both of the principal lawyers frustrated. Darrow was understandably frustrated. He wanted to show the scientific reason was superior to what he saw as religious superstition. Brian was also frustrated. He hadn't joined the prosecution to preserve a single law in a single state. He wanted to talk about the word of God. He wanted to defend the Bible. And there was no way he could do that within the parameters of the trial, at least as they had uh, been set uh, by the judge. So then what was the most famous, became the most famous part of the trial, uh, took place on the seventh day of the trial. There was a lot of people crowding in the courtroom. As you see, the courtroom was, you know, fairly fairly big, but nevertheless, only about, fit about 300, 400 people there. And many more people, reporters, um, regular citizens, people from outside the area wanted to see this famous trial, which was being reported in newspapers all over the country. Um, so the judge decided he would move the proceedings outdoors. And one of the reasons, too, it was July in Tennessee. It's East Tennessee, it's mountainous Tennessee, it's not as hot as, say, Memphis in July, but it's still pretty hot middle of July without air conditioning. People had these fans uh, given to them by a local funeral parlor, which they were waving up and down as quickly as they could in front of their faces. But you can see in this photo, uh, Brian has one of those um, down by Darrow's elbow. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it was hot. So uh, afraid that the floor would, of, the, of, the, uh, of the courtroom would collapse, afraid that people were you know, bound together and uh, almost suffocating because it was so hot. The judge on the seventh day moved the proceedings outside to a, where there was a speaker's platform and wooden seats that had been set up by the local authorities. Um, here's a photo. Soon after court reconvened in the open air, one of the, one of the defense attorneys shocked and delighted the throng of 3,000 people watching with a single sentence. He said, the defense desires to call Mr. Bryan as a witness. Now, it's pretty unusual to ask a prosecutor to take the stand uh, to defend, in effect, his point of view. But Brian, who was, a, you know, as you know, a famous speaker, he had used his speaking talent to become three-time nominee of one of the two major political parties in America, um, accepted the challenge. He said, fine, 
I'll accept being examined by the defense if, after that's finished, you allow me to, of course, examine them as well. And not just Darrow, but everybody on the defense, all the key defense attorneys. Um, there were three altogether. Now, the trial could finally become the contest of faith for which Brian had hoped and the press had expected. Uh, and Darrow, as the most experienced, most famous trial attorney on the defense team, was going to conduct the cross-examination. And here's a photo. Uh, you see Darrow in the center there, and on the left, um, uh, Brian sitting in a chair, ready to be cross-examined. The court stenographer is to the left of Darrow, sitting down in the shirt sleeves. And this is how the cross-examination began. You have, given, you, have given, excuse me, you have given considerable thought to the Bible, haven't you, Mr. Brian, said Darrow. Yes, sir, I have tried to, said Brian. For the next two hours, Darrow kept his foe on edge with a cascade of short questions about the, trust, about the trustworthiness of Scripture. Do you believe a whale swallowed Jonah? Do you believe Joshua made the sun stand still? Do you take the story of the flood to be a literal interpretation? Do you think the earth was made in six days? Brian was trying to kind of cagey. He didn't say yes to any of Darrow's questions, at least not an unqualified yes. The whale, he said, maybe was just a large fish. Maybe it wasn't actually a whale. And maybe God had not specifically directed that large fish to ingest a man. Neither did Brian speculate about how long the Lord has suspended the laws of physics to stop the rotation of the earth. Because clearly, if you make the sun stand still, then the earth has some problems uh, in its rotation as well. Uh, and Brian rejected the notion that the day of creation mentioned in Genesis was actually 24 hours. Brian subscribed to what some fundamentalists called at the time the age-day theory, where the, a, where the days mentioned in Genesis actually refer to an eon of time, thousands and thousands of years for each day. And Brian evaded direct questions with, with answers that seemed rather thoughtless and dogmatic. For example, when Darrow asked when the, when the flood took place, Darrow said, quote, he'd never made a calculation. Darrow pressed on. What do you think? Brian bristled. I don't think about things I don't think about. Uh, that sort of left the door wide open to ridicule. Darrow, do you think about things you do think about? Answer, well, sometimes. The court reporter noted, Laughter in the courtyard. After several minutes of this, the prosecutors frantically asked the judge to stop the cross-examination. Darrow, he claimed, was straying too far from the origin of the case. Clearly, his fellow prosecutors needed to stop Brian from hurting himself and hurting the cause of fundamentalism. The judge reminded the prosecutor who tried to stop the case that Brian wants to ask the other gentlemen questions along the same line. And Brian wanted to continue. Um, but clearly, on the seventh day of the trial, he should have rested. <laughs> the day ended with a merciless exchange between the two lawyers. Brian shouted to Darrow, your only purpose is to slur at the Bible. Darrow snapped back, I'm exempting you on your fool ideas no intelligent Christian on earth believes. They go to sleep, go, go, they leave, they go to sleep the next morning, the judge comes in and orders Brian's testimony expunged from the official record. <laughs> he says it wasn't germane to the trial. So the actual transcript is very long. The official record is not very long. 
Then Darrow made sure the last meaningful words in the trial would be his. He made sure that Brian would not be able to cross-examine um, the other lawyers. First order of business after the judge ordered Brian's um, testimony uh, taken out of the court record, uh, Darrow asked the judge to instruct the jury to bring in a guilty verdict. He says, we're pleading guilty. Um, the jury goes out for a few minutes to come back, say, yes, John Scopes is guilty, has to pay a $100 fine. That was the only penalty. Um, later on, uh, this cross-examination becomes famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, in a very popular film in 1960 called Inherit the Wind. Have you ever seen this film? Um, and, and the two figures were played by Spencer Tracy on one, on the, as Darrow and Frederick Marx on the other hand. Um, and the film made no doubt which side you should agree with, of course. Um, Spencer Tracy never plays a villain, if you know your old Spencer Tracy films. Um, now, Brian cited won a hollow victory, but it was men like this, H.L. Mencken, a popular, satirical genius reporter for the Baltimore Evening Sun, which was then a leading newspaper in America, who actually paid the $100 fine that Scopes owed. Uh, Scopes didn't pay it. The Baltimore Evening Sun, in the person of his star reporter, H.L. Mencken, paid that fine. And H.L. Mencken and other modernists in the cities who ran the major newspapers in the country made sure that for most Americans, even though legally the Scopes trial was a victory for the prosecution, uh, made sure that it was not a victory in the culture wars of the 20s. A few other states passed anti-evolution laws. Um, most Americans continue to believe in the biblical account of creation. In fact, according to polls, most Americans still do. But they increasingly rejected the idea that religious truths were more legitimate and should overshadow scientific ones. Uh, biology classes in most of the country are not censored. Um, and fundamentalists, after the Scopes trial, retreated for the most part from the public arena and focused on building an institutional base of their own. Fundamentalist colleges, fundamentalist seminaries, fundamentalist magazines, and fundamentalist radio stations. And Mencken's view about Brian convinced many Americans that, in fact, anybody who would support uh, banning the teaching of, teaching of evolution in public schools, who was opposed to scientific truths, is an idiot, as Brian was an idiot. Here's a little bit of Mencken's um, obituary of Brian, who died a week, excuse me, five days after the end of the Scopes trial of diabetic shock. This is Brian's obituary of William James Bryan. Not the kind of obituary anybody really wants. Quote, he seemed like a, only a poor clod like those around him, deluded by a childish theology, full of almost pathological hatred of all learning, all human dignity, all beauty, all fine and noble things. Bryan was a peasant come home to the barnyard. He looked like a dog in rabies. <laughs> In the, in the Dayton courtyard, me, with rabies. Finally, Brian liked people who sweated freely and were not debauched by the refinements of the toilet. This is an obituary of one of the most popular politicians in America in his time. Um, so this aspect of the culture wars was already being won by the modernists, clearly, as were most of the others. Film and, of course, prohibition itself was repealed in 1933. But, the, but, but the, the, the traditionalists didn't go down easily. They continued to pass some anti-evolution laws. They continued to think prohibition was a good idea. And they continued to nurture 
um, a sense that restoring America's traditional values is a good thing. And if you get away from those traditional values, you get away from what made, made America great. And if you hear echoes of that in political debate, last year in the presidential uh, campaign, and even today, uh, it shouldn't be a surprise. I want to end with um, a little piece of, uh, of popular entertainment by one of those fundamentalists, uh, a very gifted musician named Uncle Dave Macon from the 1920s, a song called The Bible's True. You hear okay? for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.